This is hell. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. In 2006, the people of Oaxaca rose up against undemocratic rule in what has been called the first insurrection of the 21st century, which has oddly been derailed by the Mexican government's launching of a nationwide conflagration known as their drug war. But what led up to this first insurrection against undemocratic rule? Well, a lot of things, some seemingly contradictory. Like something called neoliberal multiculturalism, where indigenous traditions are commodified for the good of the economy, as well as the state. The state benefits from its capturing of indigeneity by embracing pre-colonial indigenous history and cultural traditions for its own new national identity. Then there's Mexico's development policy for the indigenous. Sure, they might have looked up to indigenous culture by looking backwards into history, but when they saw the indigenous in their present state, what the state saw were poor and backward people in need of jobs and modernity. But those development models had unintended consequences, like making the indigenous more and more aware of the inequalities imposed by colonialism and the lack of democratic rule within Oaxaca and Mexico in general. Meanwhile, the national embrace of indigenous culture allowed there to be a a greater attention to the indigenous, and a space was created and an opportunity taken for political empowerment. We'll learn the many contributing and often contradictory factors that played a role in the first insurrection of the first of the 21st century in a few minutes when we speak with A.S. Dillingham, author of Oaxaca Resurgent Indigeneity, Development and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico. Shane is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and assistant professor of Latin American history at Albright College. He serves on the organizing collective of the Tepotzlan Institute for the Transnational History of the Americas. You can follow Shane on Twitter at A.S. Dillingham, and you can find out more at alanshanedillingham.com. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, anything new by you? Oh, yes, sir. What's that? (laughs) Some exciting news at my house. Oh, I can't wait. I got a new tree in my parkway. Oh, really? Did you apply through the city and everything? (laughs) I did. Wow. I can't remember when. It must have been like last year, probably about this time, that I waded through the the maze of the city's website to find the right form to apply. But, oh, my God, it was so cool. You know those like little like personal personal like front loader machines you see at construction sites? Yeah, yeah. Well, they had one of those, but but instead of a like a bucket on the front, they had like a shovel attachment. Oh, cool! And they just came and boom, boom. <laughs> they like dug a hole and plucked the tree in there in like half an hour. Wow! So and, and it was done. Do you know what kind of tree? Yes, it's a maple tree. Oh, look at you! <laughs> That's very hot. We had one planted in front of our place when we were living in Lincoln Square, and it lasted like two days before somebody stole it. I couldn't believe that somebody stole our tree. <laughs> I really would like to have a tree in our parkway, so I'm going to have to ask you how to go about that because I really... And by the way, I used to, uh, we used to call those uh, trucks that you're talking about ramen grabs because we didn't know what the hell to call them. <laughs> At this very moment right now in my glamorous life as a radio broadcaster and podcaster, I am currently doing laundry 
in preparation for my annual family vacation, which begins in about 49 hours. And the thing I am looking forward to the most during vacation is sleeping. So I want to thank David at Wild Folk Farms for sending their wonderful medicinals. They have helped me have an uninterrupted night of sleeping the last few nights, although that sleep has only been about six, six and a half hours. I still have yet to have that eight-plus-hour sleep where you wake up completely recharged since the pandemic started. And this year, when we go to the lake, I will be fishing for the first time in who knows how long. And when my family goes fishing at the lake, they go early in the morning, which is problematic for me because I like staying up late at night drinking by the fire when I'm on vacation. And late-night drinking while catching up on my sleep and doing some early-morning fishing, that's a logistical nightmare, if not an impossibility. So... I will either not be drinking enough this vacation, or I won't be sleeping enough, or I won't be catching enough fish. But more importantly than any of that, Richard, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, so, where are you summering? <laughs> so you don't want to try a rich person's voice either? It needs to be that northeastern, uh, Grey Gardens, Kennedy-esque, Hamptons. Oh, so what, so where are you accent. summering? Yes. Where are you summering? <laughs> exactly. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer in by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff seeks relief in our nation's capital. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Shane Dillingham on his book, Oaxaca Resurgent. With many workplaces now requesting that their employees return to the office if they are fully vaccinated, the staff here on This Is Hell, as well as their family members, now have to devote more of their time to family care. That means we are looking for new producers and board operators here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board here on This Is Hell, like Richard is doing today, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and tell us why you would like to join us here on This Is Hell. Producers not only get access to a professional studio for their own projects, but they also get a modest stipend for producing each episode. Other perks include... Becoming friends with Mel, the semi-feral barquette. Yes, we are, again, looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board as Egon and Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week to once every other week to once a month here at our studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Thursday. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects. And like I said, the position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. If you are interested in becoming a board operator slash producer here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com, of course, with this position, you do need to live in the Chicago area. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer here on This Is Hell, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. We got an email from Chris at chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, Chris writes, hi, Chuck. Thanks for continuing your great work, and congratulations on 25 years of This Is Hell. 
I just wanted to say, in case you are not aware, that Liverpool listeners, we have a lot of listeners in Glasgow, but apparently we have a lot of listeners in Liverpool as well. Just wanted to say, in case you are not aware, that Liverpool listeners are likely, like me, to cringe when you give the Sun newspaper any mention on your show. It has been the subject of a decades-long boycott here for the proven lies it told about the Hillsborough disaster, blaming fans for the 97 deaths that after years of campaigning for the truth by victims and their families were proved to be the fault of the police and that the Sun helped with the police cover-up. So the Hillsborough disaster, it took place in 1989 uh, during a soccer match at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield during an FA Cup semifinal between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest where fans were overcrowded in the cheering sections. Liverpool's goaltender even reported he could hear fans pleading for help as the match continued. Chris continues, The sun is not sold in most Merseyside shops because of their role in covering up police complicity in the deadly disaster, and people here in Liverpool maintain a, quote, total eclipse of the sun for this. Not to mention the sun's profoundly anti-working-class conservative Tory-supporting stance. Boycott of its website, social media, etc. might not bring the Murdoch empire down, but it is an act of solidarity with the Hillsborough campaigners who fought so hard and for so long for justice. Phil Scratton, who wrote Hillsborough The Truth and who headed the independent review panel on Hillsborough, would be a good interview on This Is Hell, I think. I also found this up-to-date paper by Phil Scratton, Fractured Lives, Dissenting Voices, Recovering Truth, Frontiers of Research and Resistance, which puts Hillsborough in the wider context of rejecting, quote, the premise that knowledge is value-free or value-neutral, but derived and reproduced historically and contemporaneously in the structural relations of inequality and oppression that underpin established social orders. All the best, Chris. So, Chris, our apologies for offering hangover cures two weeks in a row from the British tabloid The Sun, which is part of Rupert Murdoch's media empire. But for whatever reason, British tabloids run the most stories about hangover cures. And as we have been offering hangover cures to start our show for 20 plus years now, and we do our best to not repeat hangover cures, it is becoming increasingly difficult to find new cures. That said, using the uh, 1989 Hillsborough disaster is context for a discussion on the search for truth does sound intriguing. So let me look over the paper and maybe we'll, we'll have your suggested guest, Phil Scratton, on the show. And if you have a guest suggestion, please send it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. And if we have your suggested guest on air, we'll thank you like we will thank Chris if we schedule an interview with Phil. And Chris, thanks us for the, uh, you know, Congratulations on our 25th anniversary. We really appreciate it. We are looking forward to seeing all of you at the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is Art, which is happening Saturday, September 18th, featuring live music and art opening and a raffle of This Is Hell related or inspired or adjacent prizes. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act you would like to see perform or you are an artist and 
or would like to recommend an artist for the art opening, email us at chuckatthisishell.com and maybe you or your suggestion will be performing music or displaying their art. That's the This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is art happening on Saturday, September 18th. Send us your suggestions for musical acts to perform or artists to show their work. Yes, our actual anniversary of airing on WNUR for 25 years was a couple weeks ago, but we had to reschedule the party due to the ongoing pandemic. So it's now happening, at least we hope it will be happening if everything goes well on Saturday, September 18th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood coming up, the tangled roots of an uprising in Oaxaca. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is where are you summering? Where are you summering? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show. Live from the Nightmare of Want, This Is Hell. Colonialism strips the identity from the colonized. Rituals, traditions, customs, ways of living are stolen many lost forever in mexico however after the revolution overthrowing their spanish occupiers the new nation sought its own identity identity that was disconnected from their colonial past so government officials looked further into the past and found the rich history of the indigenous but building a national identity on an image of a long-lost indigenous culture that is suddenly revered can be problematic especially when the indigenous people are now oppressed and suffering from various forms of inequality still imposed upon them despite colonialism supposedly being over. Embracing indigeneity by commodifying it and seeing the indigenous as in need of modernization can and have had surprising outcomes. Here to help us understand the rich history and roots of the first insurrection of the 21st century, A.S. Dillingham is author of Oaxaca Resurgent Indigeneity Development and inequality in 20th century Mexico. Welcome to This Is Hell, Shane. Good morning, Chuck. Good to be with you. You have this amazing prologue that I want to talk about because it it just made me rethink the way in which I, at least I view, uh, indigenous people. You write. You start with events that happened in Oaxaca in 1899, writing Frederick Starr, an American anthropologist on a journey through southern Mexico to document what he called racial types of the indigenous population. He and his team aimed to measure, photograph, and create plaster busts of 100 men and 25 women of each tribe, including the people of San Andres. As the men closed in, several women yelled out in alarm. A scene of chaos ensued. Some fled for the surrounding hills, screaming with terror. After multiple attempts, the men managed to round up a sufficient number for Star, who recounted the moment as sport. He said, it was like nothing but the chasing of deers by it was like nothing but the chase of deer by hounds in total he claimed to have measured 2847 people on this trip the women of san andres were not alone in their refusal to be measured despite traveling with an official letter from oaxacan president martin gonzalez star encountered resistance nearly everywhere he went what does and then you mention all these kind of Contradictions. You mentioned divergent claims regarding the relationship between modernization, development, and indigeneity have a long history in the Americas. As the anthropologist Deborah Poole noted, the Indian has marked simultaneously as both pure and degenerate, noble and servile, and importantly, as at once incommensurably 
other and sentimentally ours. What happens? What does it say about our understanding of indigeneity when it has all of these contradictions and it starts from a place of uh, colonialism? Yeah, no, I mean, I I, uh, appreciate the question. And I mean, I think when I started to find those photographs, um, well, I first found Star's Travel Journal, which is held in uh, the Smithsonian um, Archives in Washington, D.C. And he actually has a long history, you know, um, he had a relationship with the University of Chicago, right? So, which is a kind of local connection, but he was someone who basically is on the edge of what we might describe as these kind of 19th century, you know, white European explorers who are part of the kind of pillaging and exploration of the kind of global South and the professionalization of anthropology as like a modern academic discipline that was legitimate. And so, you know, he kind of sits on that kind of intersection uh, of those two tendencies Um, And so his idea was that he was actually, you know, kind of a moment of this racial science, like phrenology, the idea of, uh, you know, that is now, we, you know, is a bogus science. Um, But he thought that he could kind of physically measure different racial types uh, and, and even within indigenous populations. And so he thought that if there was a racial hierarchy in which European descended peoples were at the top, even within indigenous populations, um, there would be a racial hierarchy with some indigenous peoples more advanced and not. And so, you know, for me, what I thought was interesting about that story was one that it showed how, uh, indigeneity was kind of always this kind of imposed upon category, right? People were categorized as indigenous often by outsiders like star. Um, but I also, what I thought was important is that the women, in this tricky village in southern Mexico, refused, right, and and uh, you know fought back and uh, you know kind of ran for the hills, and so I thought that was an important um, kind of moment of contestation as well, right? That indigenous peoples aren't just victims of these types of policies, but they're actually you know challenging, rejecting, speaking for themselves, or and sometimes trying to just not be seen, right? But trying to avoid the gaze of Europeans or or outsiders. Yeah, and it, it just made me think of the colonialism that is inherent within 19th century science, within anthropology, and even in photography. And looking at the photos of the anger on the face of the indigenous people who are being cataloged, you know, and I never really thought of that as a kind of a kind of an uprising, kind of a, a revolutionary moment where they were clearly opposing colonialism that you can see in their face that they are against what is taking place to them. Like you're saying, they're they're not just bystanders. They're not just victims, that they actually stood up to colonialism. How do we view the indigenous differently when we see the anger on the face of people who know that they are being subjected to colonial science? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it... um it shows us that colonialism never went without a response, right? Whether we're talking about the arrival of, you know, uh, Europeans in the Americas, uh, you know, in the 15th century, or, you know, in the way that colonialism has all these afterlives, right? So Latin American countries like Mexico, they achieve independence at the beginning of the 19th century, but, you know, which is a, a independence, a revolution against colonial rule in the case of Mexico by Spain. Um, 
but I think what we see is how colonial uh, colonialism continues, right? And the legacies of colonialism shape our modern uh, institutions, you know, like education uh, and anthropology, but they also shape, as you're describing, you know, the rise of certain technologies like photography, right? And so, you know, um, this is an example of way, the way that photography is kind of connected to racist ideas about human difference. We can use photography to kind of chart differences among human beings, right? And so it was a, you know, I think, um, you know, one scholar describes uh, photography and racism as a toxic blend, right? And you could find other examples, you know, in the United States, there are some very famous photographs uh, around the same time in the turn of the century um, by Edward S. Curtis, who, you know, Teddy Roosevelt endorsed um, as one of the most important artists of the time. But he basically, you know, was taking photographs in the, what was becoming the American West. And, you know, some of his photographs are famous because the titles are like the vanishing Indian, right? And he's using photography to cast native peoples as part of this kind of vanishing past. Um, so photography, you know, isn't a neutral um, technology at this time. Yeah, and I actually have that Edward Curtis book, and I find it very difficult to look at. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, why is there this perceived incompatibility of the of the indigenous and modernity? Why is there this idea that the two cannot exist? Because it, the, the way that it is often framed is the two are antithetical to one another, that the uh, indigenous can never be in the modern era. They can, they're always stuck in the past. Why is there that sense of an incompatibility with indigeneity and modernity? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. Um, and a lot of people have tried to kind of wrap their heads around this. And of course, Native people have to live with this kind of contradiction, right? This is part of our daily lives. It's, you know, being Native seems, you know, somehow antithetical to the modern condition, right? And so lots of people have tried to work on this. I mean, I think the first thing that's worth noting, and this is something I talk about with students, you know, and others, is that, you know, indigeneity or the category of being Native is fundamentally a colonial concept, right? Um, you know, there were no indigenous peoples in the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans, but rather there were different groups of people, right? The Mexica, right? There were the Choctaws, there were uh, the Lakota or, um, you know, Diné peoples. None of these peoples understood themselves as indigenous. This is, you know, so in this way, uh, indigeneity is in and of itself a colonial category. Um, and then, of course, I think there's a way in which that definition then defines Native peoples as um, uh, if you are to be Native, you are connected to uh, a particular place or land, and you are connected to a um, civilization that is uh, uh, anchored in the past, right? And so if being native is somehow about tradition or being anchored in the past, then the rise of, you know, modern technologies, industrial economies, the railroads, automobiles, uh, you know, radio, which is something I talk about in the book, then somehow there is this, um, you know, contradiction between being native and engaging in the modern world. Um, and so, you know, I, just like lots of people before me, tried to kind of 
demolish this idea, right? That you know, native people are participating in the modern condition from its very beginning, right? And that there is no uh, antithesis between the two. And, you know, there's lots, I mean, there's great Native American writers today, you know, in the United States, I'm thinking of like Tommy Orange's uh, uh, relatively new novel, There, There, which is about being native in Oakland, California. And, you know, and just in, in talking about urban Indians, as part of uh, the indigenous experience, right? That there's no, con you know, that uh, Indians ride the subway, right? Or they ride the BART in the Bay Area. Um, so. So, what, happen so you know, what happens when we view a people, what happens when we view the indigenous as of the past? I guess the, more importantly, what happens to them in the present? And what happens to your future when you are seen as a historical artifact, a relic of a time that has long passed? Right. Well, I mean, the, you know, it's a, a great question. You're, you are uh, cast as a problem to be overcome, right? So if you are somehow cast outside of the modern experience, then for the economy, for education, um, for politics, indigenous people aren't seen as an asset. They're seen as a problem to be overcome, to be transformed, um, sometimes, you know, the word is assimilated. Sometimes the word is integrated. But all of these, um, what this leads to is oftentimes, you know, and throughout the Americas and both North America and South America is projects that are about uh, resolving the Indian problem, right? And this is a, a phrase that came up frequently in the 19th and 20th centuries. The Indian problem is, is something that you and I would kind of understand is, oh, yeah, that's something that needs addressing. Um, and so, you know, national governments throughout the hemisphere try to come up with, you know, policies um, that vary by country, but that are connected by the sense that Native peoples need to be brought up. You know, sometimes these are even considered, right, they're progressive, you know, government intellectuals who imagine, oh, we are going to uplift Native people. And the way you uplift Native people is basically by getting them to discard their culture, their language, their traditional knowledge, and uh, assimilate into, you know, whatever the national language is, English, Spanish. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of ways that, you know, dress, uh, you know, we've been learning a lot, for example, in the last few weeks about, you know, the horrors that were the Indian boarding schools in Canada. Um, and there are parallels in the United States and there's parallels in Mexico in which, you know, native children were brought to boarding schools, not just to be educated, but to basically remove the indigeneity from um, the, those individuals, right? I mean, the uh, Richard Pratt, who runs the Carlisle uh, Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is the biggest, most important boarding school in the United States, you know, he's famous for saying, kill the Indian, save the man. Right, and it'd be hard to find a more straightforward way, uh, distillation of, of this line of thought. We were speaking about assimilation and integration on Monday's show with Roma activist uh, Sabian Fitsula, and she was talking about how mm -hmm. the Roma do not want to be integrated because once they are integrated into white schools, they're told that their life is wrong, that their ways of living are wrong, and that they're uh, people are backwards. To what extent is, uh, why don't we recognize these kinds of policies of, of assimilation and integration as policies of 
colonialism and the teaching of whiteness. Yeah, no, I mean, um, that's an important, I think, parallel with the Roma, right? Is that um, rather than viewing these policies as an extension of colonialism, or some people describe it as cultural violence, ethnocide, I think all these are useful. Even, I mean, you know, even as I said, you know, lots of the people who are involved in indigenous modernization throughout the Americas, they are actually progressives, right? They are, some of these are people are, uh, for example, you know, I mean, you know, Richard Pratt, the example I've mentioned in North America, you know, the other position rather than assimilate was, you know, annihilate. And so, you know, one of the things that we have to reckon with is that some people who were part of these policies of assimilation and cultural violence were motivated by ideas that if native peoples uh, learned national languages, if they became educated, um, if they could participate in a modern economy, however that was defined, that that would actually improve their lives, you know, that that would actually, you know, give them a better life. And so I think we have to kind of reckon with that. And, you know, for those of us who are kind of interested in the history of left thinking and indigeneity, there are forms of leftist politics that basically, you know, would be indistinguishable from other kind of assimilationist projects, right? So sometimes, you know, there were leftist ideas in Mexico in the wake of the 1910 revolution, which was a kind of popular revolution that coincided with the Russian revolution in 1917. There's some leftist intellectuals who think, look, in the, you know, rural population in Mexico, they are campesinos, right? They are peasants. And we need to understand them as in a, through a class category. And when they are speaking their indigenous languages or practicing indigenous traditions, that is a kind of pre-modern mysticism or, you know, traditional way of thinking that gets in the way of class politics. And what we need for a properly revolutionary movement are class politics. And so that was a kind of a dominant position, but there was a minority of leftist intellectuals in Mexico who were kind of inspired by some of Lenin's writing about um, the right of nations for self-determination, a minority of leftists said, no, actually, well, maybe indigenous peoples should be able to preserve their languages and culture and also participate in revolutionary politics on their own terms. You know, I think that, that minority, who I, which I try to talk a bit about in the book, you know, I think that's a, a kind of interesting, valuable position for us to think about today. And you write that indigenismo, which originated in the late 19th century as Latin American elites attempted to distinguish themselves from their former European colonial powers, has come to signal state discourses and practices that celebrate indigenous aesthetics and a pre-Hispanic past while figuring contemporary indigenous populations as a problem to overcome. So is this a co-optation of indigeneity by elites in order to claim some sort of authenticity, even a level of nativism? Yeah, absolutely, Chuck. I mean, the, you know, this, there is a way in which, you know, elites in Latin America, I think less so in the Anglo Americas in the US and Canada, as they are trying to distinguish themselves from the former European powers that, you know, had colonized these regions, um, they look to the pre-Hispanic past as a way to say, we're not European, right? Although, of course, these elites, many of them have deep connections to Europe. They speak European languages. They went to perhaps university in Europe, but they kind of strategically invoke uh, indigeneity or an indigenous past, right? They put up statues of Aztec leaders in Mexico City as a way to distinguish themselves as new independent nations 
um, that are distinct from European uh, powers. And so that is a kind of elite project that I think you could aptly describe as co-optation. Um, and, you know, it was enacted by people who had little interest in kind of respecting the integrity of indigenous peoples or cultures. But, you know, it's like in the, I also think that there's, I try to pay attention to this in the book, these kind of lies, you know, that, you know, oh, we are an indigenous nation and we value and respect that. It's kind of objectively a lie at the time, or, you know, in the United States, you know, the declaration of independence, all men are created equal, written by slave owners. These, these lies can sometimes also be productive, right? Uh, kind of historically, because it gives other people the opportunity to kind of grab onto those lies, right? And say, you say this, but in reality, that's not the, the society we live in. So does revering the past erase the present lives of the indigenous in Mexico? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's a, that's a, a tough question, right? I mean, so I, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about the um, a modern excavation of an ancient Zapotec city, Monte Alban, which is, you know, uh, very close to the Oaxacan state capital today. And that's excavated in 1932 and is part of this kind of post-revolutionary state building in Mexico that is about creating this national discourse that um, um, kind of celebrates the indigenous past um, on the state's terms. And, you know, that site is a site now that's an UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's a very important site. Um, I don't think that, you know, the excavation of archaeological sites in and of themselves, um, you know, have to erase the um, indigenous present. But I think the way they're done and the context in which those sites are excavated often does contribute to situating native peoples as part of the past, right? As again, as we were talking about this contradiction is if we're celebrating these sites, there's a Zap, you know, this is a Zapotec city that, predates European arrival. Um, well, the Zapotec people that are, you know, working in the excavation, the Zapotec people that, you know, make the city of Oaxaca run, well, then, then they are in some ways kind of connected to this ancient past, right? And so um, I think that is the unique challenge that Native people face throughout the Americas is this way in which even when states are invoking in an indigenous past or an indigenous culture in a kind of really superficially positive way, at the end of the day, those acts can further the notion that we as native peoples are, you know, um, uh, somehow uh, part of the past or in, you know, in the worst case scenario, a kind of um, legacy, a corrupted legacy of a kind of romanticized past, right? Does the state then, in an attempt at legitimization through co-opting Native history, increase public recognition of the poor treatment of the indigenous by the state? And it, it is, is that their intent? Is that what... uh, yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you're getting at something really important, Chuck, right? I mean, I mean, you think about, for example, you know, Diego Rivera's murals. Um, you know, Diego Rivera, you know, um, internationally renowned muralist. He's part of international leftist circles. And if you visit the Mexican pa National Palace today, where the presidential offices are, 
there are these amazing murals that depict Mexican history from the pre-Hispanic past, the Tenochtitlan, the capital of the Aztec empire, in a very kind of glowing, um, um, uh, romantic way, and then portrays Mexican history unfolding up until the Mexican Revolution, um, shows the period of colonization as one of exploitation and violence. You know, you see you know, um, priests in negative light and rich conquistadors in negative light. And, you know, at the end, you see this kind of the Mexican revolution and, you know, you Karl Marx is painted on the Mexican national palace walls. So, you know, that is, I think, um, something that embodies this kind of contradiction, which it, it does, in a sense, anchor Native peoples to a past. But it also does, as you just suggested, I think raise the issue of colonialism and exploitation as a central part of our historical experience and also the world we live in today, right? That, that we live in a world shaped by exploitation and colonialism and that I think it does offer the opportunity to reconsider, you know, native people's place in society more broadly. Not to say that colonialism and exploitation are good things, but at the same time, it can bring those uh, issues to light while those horrible practices are happening. You write that ultimately indigeneity is a particular form of making the past speak to the present. These practices engage with a cleavage produced by colonialism, yet at the same time are unquestionably modern. Those involved in indigenous politics repeatedly debated the question of colonialism and colonial legacies over the course of the 20th century as they wrestled with Native peoples' relationship to contemporary states and persistent inequalities. They articulated varied theories of anti-colonialism. Some viewed states as facilitating colonial exploitation of indigenous peoples, while most indigenistas viewed statecraft as a tool to challenge said inequalities. So do Oaxacans then simultaneously renounce the state and colonialism while practicing statecraft? How can one practice statecraft without embracing the ideals of the colonial state? Yeah, well, (laughs) you're asking tough questions. You know, the, I mean, this is in, these are thing questions that we, I think, reckon with even for those of us living in the United States um, and haven't done enough. So, but is how are our institutions shaped by a colonial past uh, of economic exploitation of native, you know, the dispossession of native lands and the exploitation of slave labor, right? And um, I think those are things we have to reckon with and you have to reckon with how those um, historical uh, experiences shape our current institutions. In Mexico, um, you know, the one I think important thing to kind of think about is that the Mexican state is actually built in the aftermath of a 20th century revolution, right? Which is very different, say, than in the U.S., right? Where we have a a constitution that was written in the 18th century by slaveholders. The Mexican constitution of 1917 is written by uh, a bunch of kind of nationalist and left-wing intellectuals who in the constitution guarantee rights to join trade unions, rights to uh, social security, health care, all sorts of kind of social rights that we would associate with social democracy um, of one variety or the other. And so the Mexican state builds itself out of kind of corporate organizations like peasant federations and trade unions, um, which is very different than, you know, the U.S. example. And so there are people in the Mexican state, uh, including people, you know, in Oaxaca, and which is, you know, in the south of the country, who view the post-revolutionary state as a way to 
um, challenge legacies of colonialism or what sometimes they call feudalism, right? So we could use the state structure to empower peasants uh, or indigenous peoples. Um, and they did, you know, they did that by creating, you know, and strengthening peasant unions by trading, creating cooperatives um, for agricultural production, whether it was, you know, in sugar or uh, other agricultural commodities. And so um, there is a kind of interesting tradition in Mexico of, you know, progressives, people who are broadly with concerned with social inequalities, trying to do that, you know, um, work within the state. And so, you know, in, in the book I talk about, you know, there's, there's a, a mixed tech, you know, uh, intellectual and activist uh, Ramon Hernandez Lopez, who, you know, basically um, becomes an advocate for progressive education policy that would respect indigenous languages in Oaxaca. And uh, in the 1950s, for example, he's behind these experimental programs to, to create um, bilingual schools using, you know, a shortwave radio. Um, and that's a kind of minority current within government policy, but I think there are these moments in which you see, um, you know, progressive and leftist intellectuals and activists, including indigenous activists who are using state policy to try to, you know, improve the lives of indigenous peoples. And you point out that while modernization took place through a multiplicity of actors and forces, including the growth of national and international markets, private industry, the Catholic Church and migration, the uh, state played a disproportionate role in the history of formal efforts to transform indigenous Mexico. What was their goal in transforming indigenous Mexico? What did they hope would be the final outcome of these modernization programs? Because I want to talk about some of them that didn't work in a moment. Right. I mean, I think what, you know, what happens in the aftermath of the Mexican Revolution of 1910, there's a kind of violent phase of civil war between 1910 and 1920. And then you have a kind of stabilized, centralized government, um, you know, based in Mexico City. And, you know, Mexico geographically is a large country um, that is, you know, you know, diverse in every sense of the word in terms of language, uh, culture, gastronomy. Uh, economy, right? I mean, typically we associate kind of uh, poverty and uh, rural um, uh, areas with the Mexican South and more industrial economy, um, steel, auto production in the north of the country. Um, and so, you know, state policymakers are like, okay, we have a, a kind of fractured country that we need to reunite after this revolutionary um uh, experience in civil war that involved multiple revolutionary armies you know, fighting each other at different times. And so what they start to do is they say, we have regions, you know, including in Southern Mexico and places like Oaxaca that aren't fully integrated into national politics and the national economy. Um, and so we need to integrate them. You know, that's the kind of operative word, right? And so uh, they use policies like education, um, uh, infrastructure projects, building, you know, highways, roads, bridges. Um, uh, they use public health campaigns, all of which to try to find what they consider isolated regions that are not connected to the national economy or national political system to try to connect those regions, right? And, and one way they kind of um, uh, define, you know, which regions need to be integrated is by kind of using this idea of um, kind of marking particular regions as highly indigenous, right? So Oaxaca has over 
16 different officially recognized indigenous languages. Um, a lot of those languages uh, have variants within them, right? So Mixtec or Tu'unsavi, um, you know, has multiple variants that aren't, un, aren't intelligible to each other, right? And so the federal government, including education officials, are saying to themselves, all these people need to learn how to speak Spanish and become Mexican, right? Um, so, you know, those are the kind of projects that they're using to try to connect what they identify as a kind of fractured country at the beginning, kind of first few decades of the 20th century. So why do modernizations like the ones you point out, like the Mega Dam Project and Green Revolution in Agriculture, not lift Oaxacans out of poverty, keeping them on their land instead of forcing them to find agricultural work elsewhere? Why did these attempts at development not succeed? Right. Um, well, I, you know, I do think there is, you know, how we want to define development in terms of, you know, people use different indicators, you know, macroeconomic growth or, you know, diversification of regional economies. Um, Oaxaca does, of course, uh, evolve and develop over the course of the 20th century. But what you're describing, which I think is really important, is the kind of mid 20th century uh, efforts at um, uh corporate kind of uh, industrial agriculture, right? Large scale agriculture, um, uh, hydroelectric dams, um, uh, efforts to industrialize the economy. Um, those projects generally benefit Northern Mexico. Um, and I think they do so for a couple reasons. One is that, and this is I think a, a pretty important one, is the proximity of Northern Mexico to US markets, right? So, I mean, if, you know, if you've spent, you know, if, if you were in Baja, California, for example, you know, agricultural farms in Baja, California are a six hour drive from grocery stores in, in Southern California, right? Um, so there's those types of kind of development initiatives where the federal government is basically investing in large scale uh, industrial agriculture in Northern Mexico are in part because of the proximity to the U.S. economy, right? Um, I think the other thing that relates to uh, kind of geography is that Oaxaca, which is in Southern Mexico, it borders the state of Chiapas um, to its east, the state of Guerrero to its west, you know, not far south is Guatemala. Um, this is a region that is, uh, has multiple mountain ranges um, that are difficult to traverse. It has a, a highland um, central valley uh, where the state capital is located. And, you know, in the pre-Hispanic world, in the, even in the colonial period, um, even into the 19th century, that geography in Southern Mexico of multiple mountain ranges of high and lower altitude um, valleys of a Pacific coast, that facilitated a regional economy that was self-sufficient. But those kind of, um, geographical uh, advantages in the, you know, colonial or even 19th century period, as we have developed national and then international markets uh, into the 20th century, those kind of um, advantages become disadvantages, right? So Oaxaca's impenetrability, right? It's mountain ranges, it's diverse kind of arid um, uh, um, highland regions for federal uh, development agents, they see all those as barriers to development um, because it's about how do you get commodities to market, right? And so Oaxaca geographically is, you know, seen as um, 
not an ideal place for large scale capital investment. So I think that's that's part of the issue. And that, of course, as you alluded to, means that many Oaxacans, as I say, right, participate in modern you know, capitalist development, but they do so as migrant laborers, right? They do so by leaving Oaxaca either seasonally or permanently. And, you know, we have a, you know, large scale Oaxacan diaspora that spans from, you know, Southern Mexico through Northern Mexico into, you know, Western United States and into Canada today. Uh, we, I'm sure we could have this conversation for 90 minutes instead of just 50, but, <laughs> but you write that struggles centering the experience of native people, people's marginalization emerged throughout the Americas in the eighties and nineties. Scholars have often emphasized a rupture between previous models of politics focused on class and the rise of so-called identity politics. This scholarly em- emphasis on a political break has failed to reckon with crucial developments in the seventies, specifically the cultural pluralism produced within the new left and third worldist circles as people through Throughout the globe articulated new theories of revolution. They reckoned anew with questions of culture and colonial legacies. A Oaxacan example of this global dynamic is the theory and practice of com- communality. What is meant by communality? How is it practiced within Oaxaca? Yeah, no, so, um, you know, comunalidad, which is the concept in Spanish or communality in, in its English translation is basically, you know, as the passage you read suggests, a kind of theory that develops in the political effervescence of what we might call the kind of global 1960s and 1970s, right? Um, In which you see, you know, a kind of resurgence of um, uh, ideas of revolution across, you know, the world, right? Not just in in Mexico, but in, you know, the United States, all over, right? 1968, right? Is this kind of global revolt. And so indigenous youth in Oaxaca aren't um, separate from that, right? Many of them, um, some of them worked as kind of development agents, right? In these programs that we were talking about and education or public health initiatives in the fifties and sixties. Um, and in that way kind of were empowered unintendedly by some government policies. And many of these folks, they start to participate in kind of left-wing political circles uh, that existed in Mexico uh, and beyond that, um, you know, were sometimes kind of Maoist um, kind of variants of Marxism or Trotskyists. Um, and many of them went to school, say, in Mexico City, right? And so um, they go, you know, figures like, you know, Floriberto Diaz, someone I mentioned in the book, you know, are, are figures who are from Oaxaca. They go to school in Mexico City. They become involved in left-wing politics. And then they come back to Oaxaca, which is a relatively rural place, um, and they go back to their indigenous communities and try to kind of make those radical Marxist politics and indigenous kind of realities in Oaxaca fit together. And so what they kind of develop, and it's a kind of diverse theory, but this theory of comunalidad or communality is one that kind of takes the communal governing structures that have existed in indigenous communities for centuries, right, of kind of mutual aid and obligation, right? If we are from the same indigenous community, I can expect to have to, um, you know, work in collective, you know, projects um, in benefit of my community, whether it's, you know, serving um, in kind of community security or serving in the community library or the community church, um, uh, but I can also expect to have certain benefits from my membership in a community. And so um, these young activists in the 70s, they kind of blend Marxist theories of revolution 
and the communal governing structures of Oaxacan communities into this concept of communality, right? Which is that we can use this idea of mutual aid and reciprocal you know, support as a model for society more broadly, which is different than say a political system that is based off of individual rights, no? So was communality then communality? Was it seen by the state as a challenge to state power? Is communality anti-capitalist? Yeah, I mean, I think it takes different forms, right? It has different valences. And so I think, you know, at times, you know, people who are engaged in these types of kind of hybrid politics, um, you know, you could think of the Zapatista rebellion of 1994, which is in the neighboring state of Chiapas. This also involves indigenous communities, left-wing activists, some of them from northern Mexico who go and kind of live with indigenous communities, um, you know, that eventually involved into an armed uprising, you know, in January of 1994 and, you know, provoked a large-scale military response by the Mexican army, um, you know, significant number of casualties uh, and a large-scale kind of military standoff that has lasted for decades. But there's other forms, I think, of communality that you could understand as part of a more kind of autonomous currents that are about local control and um, local support. And so in that way, you know, those variants of communality uh, aren't necessarily a threat to the state as such. Um, you know, one issue in Mexican politics is, you know, we, they have um, here a political system that involves political parties that are highly corrupt um, and often kind of forms of making money. And so communality or communal governance structures like the kind of usos y costumbres systems that exist in Oaxaca, those can be threats to the mainstream political parties who view them as, you know, uh, um, kind of cutting into their territory, right? Political parties want to run municipal uh, um, politics. They don't want them to be run necessarily through a, a popular assembly that involves collective votes, right? You mentioned how the PRI, the what seventy-year-long dominant party within Mexico, one of its last holdouts was in Oaxaca. Oaxaca always had a support for the PRI, but you write that this uh, support wasn't because of the uh, PRI's political intimidation of Oaxaca, as much as it was about the way that there is municipal control, the way that there is local control of governance within Oaxaca, and they just kept forcing the PRI to give them concessions towards indigenous rights. And that's what gave them the power within, that's what uh, a longstanding sustainable power within Oaxaca. And you write that teachers working in the indigenous education sector were at the forefront of challenging pre-rule and rising economic austerity. The teacher trade union uh, struggle unfolded in the late 70s and early 80s as the Institute of National uh, Indigenous Nationals and the uh, SEP, the Secretary of uh, Edu Public Education, uh, simultaneously adopted policies of uh, ethnic development and uh, participatory indigenismo. During this period, leaders within the PRI adopted neoliberal policies, which in turn created a crisis of legitimacy. Why did that lead to a crisis of legitimacy? Why are Oaxacans so opposed to neoliberalism? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you, you lay out a number of important factors there. I mean, the one is that, and then, you know, so Mexico is governed by this, the institutionally institutional revolutionary party or the PRI and its Spanish acronym. That party is basically a consolidated post-revolutionary party that dominates a, a, for all intensive purposes, 
purposes, a one-party political system up until the year 2000, in which the former head of Coca-Cola in Mexico, Vicente Fox, is elected. Um, and, you know, there's debates, there have been debates about that party, whether it was a kind of a, and, and the state it controlled, was it a strong or weak state, you know, that was a, controlled by the PRI. And, you know, my view is that it actually is a kind of weak state, even though it has the appearance sometimes because of its repressive apparatus, appearance of a strong state. And so in Oaxaca, for example, the PRI had to negotiate basically with communities over, there's over 500 um, municipalities in Oaxaca um, to basically who were very strong, who would control um, their territory, would make it very difficult for infrastructure projects or highways to be built without their assent. So the PRI basically has to have a negotiating strategy, right? Which is, we'll give you local control in exchange for if you vote for us for national election, right? So the, the, the PRI won't mess with your, um, you know, communities, but you need to uh, give us votes every six years or every, you know, few years, um, depending on the election. And so I think that's an important part of understanding why, how often power is kind of held from below in Oaxaca. Um, but the PRI also had a kind of generally a redistributive um, politics for most of uh, the 20th century, you know, with changes over time. And so, you know, it did support peasant federations. It did support agricultural cooperatives. It did invest uh, a certain amount in federal education. And so, you know, in the 1980s and more fully in the 1990s, as the PRI starts to adopt neoliberal policies, which are, you know, take different forms, but here would be kind of austerity, would be, you know, lowering, um, you know, um, public workers' salaries, pensions, um, uh, uh, agricultural supports on important commodities like corn and coffee and sugar. All of that has the effect um, of really kind of devastating the Mexican countryside, right? And so, you know, you see large waves of migration to the United States, Mexican migration to the United States in the 1980s and 1990s, precisely because small scale Mexican agricultural producers can't make a living anymore because, you know, they're competing with my uncle Jimmy's farm in central Illinois. Right. And so, you know, that is the way that, so the pre, if they had any legitimacy before their adoption of neoliberalism, neoliberalism really starts to undercut it. Right. Um, because it's like, well, what are we getting out of this deal? If, if we're being kind of, subsumed in an economic crisis that disproportionately affects rural and indigenous peoples. And I know uh, that we're limited on time, but before we go, we have to touch on what happened in the spring of 2006, where you write Section 22 began what had become an annual ritual of strikes and negotiations with the state government. But 2006 was different. After an initial round of negotiations, Governor Ulysses Ruiz Ortiz ordered police forces to remove the striking teachers, Ponton, from the Zocalo on June 14th. The annual strike quickly grew into much more than the usual fare of pressuring the government for improved salary and contract negotiations. Section 22 leaders had a public meeting on June 17th in which what would become the assembly, a popular assembly of the people of Oaxaca was formed, comprising not only the teachers union, but broad swaths of Oaxacan civil society. The group called for a host of reforms, primary among them the resignation 
of Governor Ruiz Ortiz. The movement developed a wide array of tactics, including street actions, but also the seizure of public TV and radio stations, which were then converted to activist programming. What was the federal government's response to this uprising against the PRI for embracing neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, so the the uprising in 2006, which you've just read and described, uh, comes close to overthrowing the state government, right? It um, paralyzes the state capital, Oaxaca City, uh, for months. Uh, activists uh, and the social movement basically control um, the, the state capital and its kind of historic center. They organize um, community barricades. They organize garbage collection. Um, they basically, you know, there's a, a, if you, you know, wanted to kind of think about historical precedents, there would be a kind of almost a situation of dual power, right? Of community control and the state, you know, still existing, but not having full control. And their activist efforts in 2006, I mean, their goal was to overthrow the governor who they saw as undemocratic and repressive uh, and corrupt among other crimes. And so, you know, that uh, movement coincides with the 2006 presidential elections. And so in part, the federal government doesn't really intervene in Oaxaca until the fall of 2006, because they're busy with a disputed or contested presidential election, which our, the current president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, was narrowly defeated and then challenged the election results in the streets of Mexico City. So it's not until the fall where there's a federal response and the federal response eventually is to say, okay, we're going to back up this pre-governor, um, which, and I would argue that they do so in exchange for the pre's support um, for um, uh, the uh, presidential, um, the, the PAN's presidential candidate, uh, Felipe Calderon, as the uh, victor of the 2006 presidential election. So there's a kind of compromise made among these uh, political parties that allows for um, the federal government to send in the federal police, which is basically a militarized um, riot uh, police to Oaxaca to put down the social movement. And then the PRI nationally uh, backs up and supports uh, the PAN's uh, presidential candidate as the legitimate victor of the 2006 elections. And so, you know, the, there's a moment in which the elections uh, of 2006 provide a window for the movement in Oaxaca to grow, but then is that, um, you know, there is a compromise made by political elites, then kind of repression uh, follows, you know, large numbers of federal police are brought both by airplane as well as by, you know, transport to Oaxaca. There's a siege of the city, people fight back, but eventually the social movement is defeated uh, and the governor stays in power till the end of his term. You also write that Calderon's subsequent declaration of war against drug cartels and deployment of the military throughout the republic inaugurated a period of widespread violence in Mexico that has yet to end. That militarization and violence have their origins in the government's repression of the 2006 Oaxacan social movement. So is the drug war in some sense cover for a war on the first insurrection of the 21st century more than it is a war on drugs? Yeah, I mean, I, you know. Uh, the drug war in Mexico or, you know, pick a country is a war against poor people, right? I think, you know, historically and also contemporaneously, um, the policies of, of, of governments uh, that are called the war on drugs ultimately have been uh, wars against poor people, right? And so 
um, whether those poor people are caught up in the production or distribution of those drugs or consumption. Um, and so, you know, I do think that, you know, there is a, a different moment, right, when Felipe Calderon, uh, the president who comes to power, you know, in 2006 or after the 2006 elections, um, when he declares war on the drug cartels, you know, he's trying to intervene in kind of violence between competing cartels for access to U.S. markets. But he's drawing on these legacies of the use of militarized police and repression in Mexican politics. And so I think in that way, you know, that is the kind of continuity that I see between the repression of 2006 and the subsequent kind of large-scale deployment of Mexican military forces throughout the country and the violence that ensues. Um, and many of the people who are caught up in that violence, you know, don't have anything to do with drug production, but are um, oftentimes, you know, poor people who are caught at government checkpoints, um, military checkpoints, et cetera. And so, you know, that's the kind of thread that I see that this notion that political problems can be solved through the deployment of military force, I think is one that we have to reject. Um, and we have to think about other ways of, um, you know, remaking politics in Mexico or beyond. I, I just found the unintended consequences of the development policies, as well as the embrace of uh, the indigenous cultures pre-colonialism, the uh, the unintended consequences, the outcomes that eventually happened that the state certainly did not expect or want, creating this environment where you would have the perfect fertile environment for actually challenging the state. I just find that uh, very, very intriguing because it's far too often, as you point out in your book, uh, you know, people just dismiss the impact of, uh, they figure that all the impact of neoliberalism when it comes to culture is going to be negative, but there actually can be openings for people to actually have discussions and to bring light to the issues that do challenge indigenous people on a daily basis. We have been speaking with A.S. Dillingham, author of Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development, and Inequality. Shane serves on the organizing collective of the Tabotzlan Institute for the Transnational History of the Americas. Follow him on Twitter at A.S. Dillingham. Find out more at alanshanedillingham.com. One last question for you, Shane. And I promise we do this with all of our guests. It's what we call the question sure. from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> might hate your response. You write that moments of capital, capitalist expansion have gone hand in hand with political and social reform. The bourgeois revolutions of the 18th and early 19th centuries brought with them both an expansion of capitalist power and a simultaneous embrace of political rights and new notions of citizenship. Rather than a paradox, the rise of neoliberal multiculturalism was another, albeit distinct, moment in the longer history of capitalism. Is there a cause and effect with capital accumulation and political and social reform? Or is it that it is only when there is money to be made off of it or power to be attained, that's when political and social reform is allowed? That multiculturalism, a concession to anti-racism, can only happen if the rich get more rich off of it and the powerful get more powerful. Yeah, a great question, uh, Chuck. Again, I mean, um, what I think is possible, we can hold two competing ideas in our head, right? That I think we have to understand that multiculturalism historically has been a concession to anti-racist demands, right? The activists in the 60s and 70s in the United States and Mexico and beyond were fighting for anti-racist education, um, for other models of politics and inclusion, um, challenging colonialism. 
Uh, and I think we see ways in which they were effective um, in kind of fits and starts. But of course, capitalism is always primed to commodify anything. And so I think just because neoliberalism commodifies, you know, multiculturalism as, you know, another, you know, market, you know, indigenous textiles to be sold uh, or, you know, uh, different forms of uh, capital accumulation, that doesn't mean that multiculturalism as a more radical kind of multiculturalism from below was doomed from the beginning, you know? Um, you know, there's nothing guaranteed in politics. So the struggles for anti-racist education, uh, et cetera, in the 60s and 70s have some um, victories. And we shouldn't um, uh, ignore those victories in our denunciations of our current neoliberal present. Shane, this has been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. And I know this sounds silly, but that prologue really blew me away. It just made me think about every one of those photos in that Edward Curtis book that haunts me on my bookshelf yeah. every day. Shane, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Yep. Take care. If that conversation with Shane Dillingham on Oaxaca made you angry, sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have had or made you feel more educated or to realize that, yes, this is hell, no question about it. Show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly Bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to this week goes out to Marcus in Oxnard, California. Thanks to Topeka in Glenview, Illinois. And thanks to Steve here in Chicago. By the way, Topeka is an awesome first name. Thanks, Marcus, Topeka, and Steve. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding. This week's question from Hell is, so where are you summering? And I think everybody is summering right now because we only have a few responses. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Except for John, he's summering at work. <laughs> nice. Nice. I like that. Neil C. is summering at Bernie Sanders' summer camp with the other 99%. <laughs> Jeez, that place is crowded. And Tyler R. is summering in hell. <laughs> okay. And that's all our answers. So uh, we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Where are you summering? Where are you summering? On tomorrow's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry will be producing tomorrow's show and reading your responses. But we must have your responses in by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. During this week's moment, Jeff seeks relief in our nation's capital. Richard, who is on tomorrow's Thursday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Thursday, we have writer... Niall Reddy. Is that how you pronounce his first I, name? You know, or is it Neil? I, dude, there's, <laughs> there's a famous annoying historian by that name, Niall or whatever, Ferguson. Okay. And I've never known how to pronounce it. And I've always been... Alex <laughs> better have, have some work cut out for him. <laughs> so writer N. Reddy on his article, A Terrifying Vision of South Africa's Future. It's for, written for Africa as a country... 
dot com. Dot com. Uh, and its uh, subtitle is, If South Africa's Left Can't Find a Way to Channel Popular Discontentment into the Building of Mass Progressive Movements, it will instead morph into anarchy, nativism, and inevitably authoritarianism. And Jeff is seeking relief in our nation's capital well also, i don't i don't know if he'll find a bathroom anywhere <laughs> a public bathroom anywhere there but i don't know if they have public bathrooms there anymore after exactly. january 6th we'll also be telling you what's happening on our weekly bonus friday episode on patreon which you can hear by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell don't forget you can go to this is hell.com click on support and get our trucker's cap our winter beanie our coffee mug our tote bag, our t-shirts, all sorts of stuff. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Shane Dillingham, author of Oaxaca Resurgent, for being on today's show. Also thanks to Richard Norwood for producing and thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's guest. You have been listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong. This is hell. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.